Welcome to the Readings Podcast. My name is Mary Madison and I'm one of the book buyers at Carlton. Today I'm talking to Emily Potter from Deakin University and Bridget Magner from RMIT. Emily and Bridget are in the midst of a project on new literary history for regional Australian futures, uh, literary history which uh, centres on the Mallee region. Um, Emily and Bridget, can you tell me first, what is a literary history of the Mallee region? Well, you need to wait some time to find out because we're composing it currently. Um, There's conventional understandings of literary history that they're chronologies of literature over a length of time, Um, but that's a pretty conservative understanding. So part of what we want to do in producing literary history of the Mallee is to um, shake up what's understood as literary history um, and explore the range of texts that are associated with the Mallee, written in the Mallee, Uh, written about the Mallee and also read in the Mallee and that's a key part of our project. So a key part of the project is incorporating the community of the Mallee now in in creating this literary history, is that a thing that I could say? We're very interested in readers' responses to texts which are written in the Mallee or about the Mallee and so in a sense we're writing a literary history that's driven by the readers. Wonderful. Is that why you came up with the idea of having reading groups is part of your research, I hear. Yes, exactly. Um, Certainly um, conventional literary history is not produced through reading groups or through engaging with everyday readers and particularly um, not readers in in places that are associated with those texts. So that's something we really wanted to try out as a kind of a method in our project. What did it mean for people from this place to read works in that place? And, and, And a great way for us to access those readers is through reading groups. And in the case of our project, we worked with reading groups that were already existing and then ones that the libraries of the area helped us to set up. And in some cases we had to form new groups because they didn't already have reading groups. So they might be composite groups that are made up of people who might have been doing reading groups in the past um, but hadn't currently been in one. So we like to tap into the groups when they existed but otherwise we had to create them. So were these in-person reading groups? I mean, the Mallee is a big area, is it? They're yes. all in person? And we've so, widely yeah. travelled. <laughs> you widely travelled the Mallee, yeah. <laughs> But there's still so much more to go. We've had reading groups so far in uh, Mildura and Swan Hill and... Quambatook. Quambatook, the beautifully named Quambatook. And... Um, Got one coming up in Hopeton. That's right, one in Hopeton. So it's a continuing project? It when, is. When did you start on the project? about 18 months ago and um, when we first started generating the project and then our first reading group was um, about a year ago actually and we've been working with um, three particular books in our reading groups um, by three contemporary novelists and that's also a different thing if you go if you look up for example the Mallee in the Oxford Literary History of Australia you'll get a handful of um, dead white males um, and we wanted to work with some living authors um, and, and including a diversity of authors. And the three books we have are Kerry McGuinness's Mallee Sky which is like a romance crime 
book, um, Carrie Tiffany's Every Man's Rules for Scientific Living, which is a sort of multi-generic kind of work, isn't it? Yeah, I did that myself in a book club many oh, years ago. Yes. 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 yes, it's a good book club yes. book. And, uh, and Michael Meehan's Assault of Broken Tears, which is also a very unusual sort of expressionistic, uh, dramatic work about the Mallee about one boy's quest around the Mallee and that one always provokes a lot of complaint but because it can be quite difficult to read but uh, it, it actually engages people much more weirdly <laughs> it's very difficult but people talk about it at great length for that reason. Were these books that you chose to take to the book clubs or did any of that generation of those texts come from the groups themselves? Or was that all no, from? so yep. far we've been bringing mm. the books to the book clubs mm. um, and we found that the readers have been very open to that um, because they're, you know, it's often why people join book groups to be exposed to books they wouldn't otherwise read necessarily. So we found the, the readers pr- relatively willing to engage. But the Michael Meehan one is interesting, particularly because we've had some, some notes returned in the copies of the books that we give the readers, which say some quite sweet things about, oh, I tried really hard, but I just... There was one that actually apologised to Michael Meehan for not finishing the book. Um, so, yeah, there's some some sweet aspects of engagement that go on. Um. And they they encourage each other to finish that one in particular. So there's a lot of moral support involved. Yes. So, mm-hmm. so-and-so told me if I just get past page 100, I'll make it through. <laughs> so that collective experience of reading is obviously very different to a private experience. Yeah. Mm. And how is what's the relationship you see between this collective reading experience and creating this literary history or this literary historical identity of the Mallee? We found that when they're reading these texts, which are very much place-based, they have real place names, and in some cases made up place names, but their geographies that they can identify, that elicits a lot of um, personal history from people. And also they really want to talk about the early days in the Mallee. A lot of them are older so in their 60s and 70s and even 80s. I think there might have been a 90-year-old yeah, was, yes. Swan Hill. Uh, so they, they are very much focused on the past and the glory days of the Mallee because it's now a place in population decline like many parts of Australia. So they tell us a lot about where the railway lines used to be, how the harvests happened, um, all kinds of things that we had no idea about. Um, so we found that they're very willing to share these stories and they they help them to engage with the text, I guess, because they, they're bringing their own understandings to the text based on their own personal histories. We found it interesting that um, the novel that generally is the least engaged with in terms of identification is Mallee Sky and that's because possibly it's set in the South Australian Mallee Um, and we had wondered at the beginning of the project whether or not there are cohering Mallee identities across different kind of Mallee landscapes Um, but there is a a real kind of um, desire on on the part of the readers to connect to the local places that they know in these texts and they try and and, and map out the geography that they know in their head onto these texts and they obviously can't do that with something like that that's uh, set in a different state. And it doesn't help that the author has used invented names. Yeah, so they really right. want the they want right the real names. place names. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there has also been some opposition to that book amongst some of our readers because it's a genre fiction 
um, text and we've discerned there uh, perhaps a degree of wanting to sort of distinguish oneself from genre fiction and align oneself with more literary texts. Um, but at the same time, there's always some members who indicate that they actually really loved it because um, it is a really good book, actually. It's a great read. Yeah. Um, yep, so they make some assumptions about it because it's a genre text, but um, Emily and I have found it one of the most engaging. Mm. It deals with some really serious topics like... Um, Indigenous genocide, like dispossession yeah, and massacre. Dispossession. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was right. going to ask about that because this literary history, the Mali in terms of the, uh, you said the Oxford mm. strain definition of it, would be entirely post, uh, post-colonisation Absolutely. or, or colonising literature. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. that's a very densely populated area in pre-colonist times. Yes, yeah. and particularly along the, the Murray River, mm-hmm. yeah, in the north of the Mali, that's right. So as our project continues, we want to start um, broadening our reader groups to... Um, to include Indigenous readers and um, and also more multicultural uh, readerships that uh, have historically been in the Mali since colonisation too. There's a great diversity amongst Mali populations, really. But so far, um, the the readers that have been recruited for our reading groups do reflect the more kind of conventional what we would would associate with reading group participants. So white, older women, basically. And that's, you know, something that we have to always acknowledge in, you know, in our work that we are getting a particular perspective from that demographic, yeah. So with your reading groups, you're getting people who already identify with the kind of literature they think they're going to read and the kind of area they think it's going to be about. Is it, is it, so it's that regional, the people in the Victorian Mallee don't identify in the same way with the... South Australia and Mali. No, they don't seem to, no. no. Although there are a number of connections, personal Mm. connections that they have with South Australia. They all seem to travel back and forth often between South Australia and Victoria. But they're very clear that that wasn't their country. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's interesting the things that have stood out as um, significant, I don't you know, emblems of the Mali to these readers. So uh, lots of them have noted the absence of the Murray from the books because it is pretty much absent. And even for the readers that don't live close to the Murray, the Murray River seems to still be a strong presence in the region, even if you're hundreds of K away from it. Um, and that's been a repeated point of reference, hasn't it? Mm. Um, the Murray does figure in the Michael Meehan novel as a, a site of exchange between um, the white boy and indigenous people. So right. it does figure yes. there, but aside from that, it's um, absent. And a lot of people noted that the beauty of the Mallee doesn't appear. They f- they find the place beautiful, uh, many of them. And they're not seeing that reflected in these not, books. Yeah, so it's often more of a bleak view is definitely the view I've always had of the Mallee based on, say, Carrie Tiffany's work. Mm, that's things. Right. Not that it's... But that it's plagues. Dust storms. Dust storms and plagues of mice and... Exactly. You know, dead yeah. cows. There's a lot of dead cows involved. <laughs> Certainly in Michael Mean's book, there <laughs> are lots the, of dead things. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> That's right. And yet, you know, as part of what we're doing assembling um, a, a you know, literary history of a place, which of course goes beyond these three novels that we've been working with, 
we're uncovering um, a, a, a real diversity and a wealth of Mali literature um, that reflects a strong creative life to the place, which, you know, doesn't accord with that deadly, deathly, dusty image. Not at all. Yeah, no, no not at there all. No, there's no one there. Yeah. The way it's spoken of. Exactly, yeah. Whereas it's literally peopled and then it's poetically peopled by diverse communities that appear in these books. One of the things that's really impressed us, something that we don't have in the same way, is, is their sense of mental geography, the way that they have a sense of the entire... Victorian Mallee region in their heads mm, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and a sort of ownership. I, I don't mean that in a bad way, but mm. it's something that we don't have and we don't have as city-based researchers and we don't have a connection with the crops, for example, and mm. they're always referring to they the are, agriculture. And the rhythms and the of agriculture, yeah. yeah. And the harvests and so on. Even the, the people that don't work in those industries anymore, it's the, the, the agricultural sort of cycle is so endemic to the life of the place that they still reference it to. We had this great experience in Quambatook of being taken out to a cemetery in the middle of the night, <laughs> which was, you know, also a little bit hairy too. But because that's the time to visit. I mean, well, if you're not going to go at night, when are you going to go? When are you going to go? Yeah. It was perfect, you're right. <laughs> but, you know, this um, lovely woman took us because she wanted to show us the grave of a, a Indian hawker, and hawkers were a big part of Mali life in the early 20th century. And um, there was a, a well-known hawker who'd, who'd been um, cremated in a traditional ceremony but then buried in a grave, in a standard sort of Western grave. And she took us through this field, you know, and there were no markers that we could discern, but she knew where she was going, fortunately. We ended up at the grave and it was... You know, it was amazing. It was beautiful, actually, with her car headlights beaming onto this eerie grave. (laughs) (laughs) That she knows the position of at all times. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we've had some very interesting Mm. encounters. It's interesting because it looks like in in that way, just from completely from the outside, that a lot of what you're describing about how the people of the Mallee, which in this situation you're talking to are mostly white and mostly older, is that it resembles so much a number of Indigenous relationships mm. with land and history and mapping of identity onto land. I wonder if it's a thing that they've talked about at all or if that's come up. Yeah, in it's interesting. Um, I mean, we do we do try and generate discussion around questions of, um, you know, the complexity of place and of mm. these communities um, being made in the wake mm. of dispossession, um, but we don't get very far, I have to say, in those mm. conversations. And part of that is awkwardness, um, awkwardness, and also people don't go to book groups necessarily to talk about weighty topics of genocide. They go to talk about, you know, social, you know, mm. social issues that arise throughout these texts, mm. which is, you know, often the, the conversation mm. we all return to those themes of relationships and female mm. experience, particularly, and so forth. Um, but awkwardness, I think, yes. Um, not knowing quite what to say or how to say it. Yeah. There seems to be a willingness to learn amongst a number of people, but they don't know where to look mm. or where to find out mm, what that's happened. That's true, mm. yeah. Um, but we found a great interest in, in, in history and connecting history to what is read. And, you know, we've had beautiful instances of our, um, our readers sending us newspaper clippings that they've gone away and researched in, in you know, 100-year-old newspapers to send to us to sort of say, oh, look, I found this that connects with that. So there is a great 
desire to to learn and to connect but in that sort of in that shadowy uncomfortable space of of the yeah. colonial it's it's yeah difficult and all of Australian. It is you know, absolutely with but, literature. And I mean, history. I think I got frustrated to the point that in one of the groups I actually had to say in relation to Molly Sky, did anyone actually notice that there's this, you know, this episode around, you know, this 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 massacre site and these bones and you know, and there was just sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe. Let's move on then. Yes. It is always an interesting <laughs> thing, isn't it, when you're actually sort of facilitating a book club exactly. is to what point do you try to interrogate in a situation that's collective and supposed to be discussion-based and, totally. and, and a safe space to talk about exactly. things. Exactly, yeah. We have to yeah, we have yeah. to hold ourselves back, I think, from trying to control it. We can't. Because yeah. there's answers yeah. we want, but we can't force them to happen. No, no. Um, and do you find that you get this, you're saying, a continuous kind of engagement after the book club? Mm. People are still in contact and they're still wanting to talk about Absolutely. what's happening? Yeah, yeah. and really they want nice. to read our work, so we have to make sure that we send it out. Yes, yeah, so I, was, I was wondering whether that, yeah, it's going to go back to people so they yeah. can see what, it will, what's come yeah. of it. Yeah, um, and there's all kinds of ongoing engagements, like the little notes, little anonymous notes that you've received. And we also, we always survey... Um, the participants afterwards and get some feedback, um, which can often be interesting as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they feel like they don't uh, get enough of a chance to say things in person if someone's dominating the conversation, yeah, yeah. or you know, their hearing prevents them from hearing everything. So we're we're learning as we go. We're trying to yeah. improve our techniques. Oh, it's a continual learning thing. I have a book club who I didn't realise wanted um, name tabs, which was oh, wonderful because okay. they really do help, yeah, at least yes. to start yeah, with. Absolutely. It's a great icebreaker, yes. but you don't think of it. No, no we think, do that now. Yeah. Yes, that's true. We didn't do it at first, yeah. though, did we? Yeah, we do do it now. And do you find that there's an interesting relationship between trying to, or not trying, doing book clubs in regional areas in this way or in city areas in a non-academic setting coming from an academic setting is a different type of discussion making oh, for me it's such a pleasure i just absolutely love it there's something about interacting with people that you haven't met mm. in a different place that's just so rewarding yes who are who are just readers you know and, and i don't mean just in a negative sense i mean that there's there's not an agenda on their part other than to read and to talk about the books and to be together in a space and maybe i think some may, perhaps some intrigue about what we're doing um and in a very positive way and it's uh, it takes part in a library but it's outside of uh, in an institutional setting yeah, where we is. would normally operate with students where there's tensions around assessment and so mm. on. It's outside of that. And they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts yeah, they are. and out of curiosity, and I think that really makes a difference. We always make sure there's lots of food yeah, that we food offer is, them. Food is good. Food and tea. And reading vouchers. And yes. readings vouchers, yes, yeah. that's right, that's the other thing. Um, but there has also been, I mean, I think because we are academics, there is some nervousness that's created by that amongst the readers that we've encountered. And one group confessed to us that they'd had a practice meeting before they met with us 
um, because they were worried about what they would say. That they wouldn't be intelligent enough. Yeah. So, and that, you know, perhaps does connect to the fact that the readers in these groups often don't have as high um, educational level as mm-hmm. you'd find in a reading group in the city. Yeah. Um, there will be some, there have mm-hmm. always been some participants who do have higher education, but obviously not all of them. Yeah, a lot of the academic work that's been done on book clubs, um, you know, statistically, uh, book club members have very high education, uh, whereas we're finding that a lot of the people that we meet in the Mallee have, you know, not finished high school, um, haven't done any secondary mm. study. So mm. that's a difference. Mm. So sometimes they are quite underconfident mm. in their So we always make a ability. point right at the beginning of talking about how, you know, we just want to hear what they say and nothing's wrong. And, and that's a bit like a tutorial, actually, too, where you have to, you know, make everyone feel welcome to put their voice forward. So I guess it's a way of forming a book club around a different type of identity. If book clubs in the city are often skew richer, more educated, mm. whiter, female, um, then a book club that's around a different identity could f- actually form around that identity. So you're actually getting people regionally in the Mallee. I mean, not everyone, but... I mean, I do a book club too, which is formed around a sort of a specific identity. Um, I do a queer book club, and so... People come from all sorts of mm. different environments to take part in that based on this part of their identity, mm. not other parts of their identity. Mm. Are you finding mm. so you're getting people sort of coming to you as, I guess, representatives of the Mallee? In a way. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I guess that's right. And we've only had two men so far, and the men seem to be custodians of certain kinds of history, mm. not, mm, emotional histories not emotional so much. history so much. Not Although domestic they, history. They do engage with hardships in the books, mm. you know. Um, but they they are very good at um, talking about disappeared towns and the way things used to be done and, and on farms in the past and so on. Um, so they they seem to approach it in a different way to the female readers, mm. who will often tell you a lot about disastrous marriages. And yeah, that's right, and connect experiences of other women that they've known to the the women's experiences in the text. Sounds right. So you'll be continuing with with these book clubs in the Mallee. Will you be extending it into South Australia in the Mallee? Are you looking at that as well? Yeah, possibly, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and there's actually technically a bioregion of Western Australia that is part of the Mallee as well. Wow. Because the Mallee, one definition of the Mallee is its vegetation. It's bioregional definition and there's a part of the... Um, western, southwestern part of Western Australia that has some of that vegetation. So you never know, we could go there as well, but go all over the country. At the moment, the it's Victoria. Mallee trees. Yeah, <laughs> at the moment, it's uh, Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. I'll be, we'd love to hear about more of it as it, it continues oh, thank on. You. Um, thank you. We're having to finish up about now, but I like to ask a question of everyone. We've been talking just Mallee literature, but what are you both reading at the moment? Is there anything? Oh, I'm um, partway through Maria Tamarkin's amazing new book, Axiomatic, which is just stunning and heartbreaking and just makes you sit in one place and read it, basically. What's it about? Well, it's about she unpacks several axioms, key axioms that um, have sort of adages attached to them and it blows them wide open to, you know, in her beautiful non-fictional style, engaging style, um, and interrogates our assumptions about what it means to have certain relationships to history. It's beautiful. 
So and also relates to what you're doing. I guess that's sort of true. sort of relates yeah, that's what you're true. doing. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. It's definitely on my reading list too. And Bridget, what are you? Um, I'm reading? reading an older novel by Eleanor Dark called called The Little Company. Yeah. Um, because I just spent a week at Veruna at her house, and uh, yeah, that was written in the 1930s, and it's all about uh, the role of writers and intellectuals in a time of war. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I read a little bit about her in um, Tom Griffith's book, The Art of Time oh, yeah. Travel. Oh, we were talking yes. about that yes. earlier. Yes, he went to her cave, which I also did. She has a cave? She had a cave this that is she an went amazing to on story. the weekend. <laughs> she went to a cave on the weekend? <laughs> yes, it's Each week. incredibly difficult to get there too. And Bridget so. went there by herself as the sun was setting <laughs> to this cave. Did you take a torch at least? <laughs> I had a headlamp. You had a headlamp. Yes. That's perfect. Quite yep. treacherous. These yeah. are the rigors of the literary scholar. Yes. I thought that was just our archaeologist friends, but now literary history scholars have to get out and about in the wilderness. (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today and sharing this with us. Today I've been speaking to Emily Potter and Bridget Magna about their work on Mali literary history, the creation of the history, and their reading groups that are part of that creation, and everything that's going to go on from now. So that's wonderful. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast on our website, readings.com.au, where you'll also find news, reviews and interviews and information on our current book, music and DVD releases. You can even sign up to the newsletter, The Readings Monthly. So thank you, Emily and Bridget, for being here and thank you, everyone, for listening. (laughs) 